This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new events childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 53, recorded on July 24, 2015. I'm your host, Tim Craig from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University, and I'm here with two co-hosts and a guest. First co-host is Dr. Neelay Shaw. Welcome, Neelay. Happy to be here. And also, Dr. Robin Dennis. Thanks for being here, Robin. No problem. Glad to be here today. And today, our guest is a uh, guest speaker here. Uh, Dr. Linda McAllister-Lucas, welcome, Linda. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Linda is Chief of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh and is the Director of the Fellowship Program there and is a physician scientist and was here today visiting, sharing some of her research with us, so we thought we'd talk to you about that. But first, as we do with all our guests, we tend to kind of like to try to find out a little bit about their background. So okay. can you tell us um, where you grew up and what got you interested in medicine? Well, uh, I grew up in the Chicago area in a suburb called Northbrook, and in high school, I loved chemistry and anatomy. They were my two favorite classes, so when I went to college, I knew for sure I wanted to major in chemistry, and I looked for a college that had a good chemistry department. Ended up going to Carleton College, which was great, and uh, at Carleton, I kind of struggled with whether I should pursue scientific research and chemistry strictly or if I should combine that with going to medical school and in the end when I figured out that there were these MD-PhD combined programs that seemed like a good solution. So uh, so I went to medical school and did the combined MD-PhD program at Vanderbilt. And then I went to University of Michigan right. and I was a resident in pediatrics and then a fellow in pediatric oncology there. Great and you've been studying uh, and you relate to us today along uh, history of uh, research into, well, really a pathway important in lymphoma, but in a lot of different biological processes. But was there any um, particular patient that sort of sparked your interest in this whole area, or were you driven to that field by just circumstances? Um, it was a combination, I think, of both. Um, I originally started working on this really because I had chosen a specific research mentor and the topic fit in well with that research mentor's lab. His name was Gabriel Nunez uh, in the Department of Pathology at University of Michigan, and he studied inflammation and the molecular events that regulate inflammation and uh, knew about a protein that's called BCL10 and uh, knew that it had a role in inflammation but didn't really know much about it, so it was an opportunity to, to study that. But from there, I went on to study non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and then other cancers. And I guess I was um, influenced by patients that I took care of when I was at University of Michigan. I tend to take, take care of mostly patients with leukemia and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And some of those patients with lymphoma, they had very unusual cases where they had underlying inflammatory diseases or underlying immunodeficiencies. They had had an organ transplant and we're taking immunomodulatory drugs and I thought that it was an area where it's just this interesting interaction between body inflammation and the development of cancer and so it seemed like a field that 
had a lot of interesting questions, so I just kept going in that direction. Yeah, it's something we really haven't talked about on any of our prior episodes, I don't think. And, you know, deficiencies, uh, the relationship of uh, inflammation to cancer. Mm-hmm. And you did start your talk actually um, mentioning the connection between H. pylori and stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that or, or other examples of inflammation mm-hmm. and cancer for our audience? Mm-hmm. Well, the disease that I began studying when I when I started my own lab was a disease uh, is a disease called malt lymphoma, and it's a type of lymphoma that, unlike some other lymphomas, doesn't happen in the lymph nodes. Instead, it happens along the what's called mucosal linings of certain organs. Usually, when those organs are faced with some kind of chronic inflammation. So, the most common example is patients who have an infection with a bacteria called H. pylori in their stomach lining. That's mostly associated with ulcers. But some, a small percentage of patients who have H. pylori infection can go on and from that chronic inflammation can develop a lymphoma in their stomach and that's called malt lymphoma. They, malt lymphoma can also happen in other sites where there's chronic inflammation and one of the more common places is in the lung. Of patients who have chronic inflammatory disease in the lung and then they can start developing, uh, basically a malignant process. It's also called malt lymphoma. There's lots of other examples of malignancies, cancers, that happen in patients in the setting of a chronic inflammatory process. Many, many other examples. Um, mostly in adults, right? Yeah. Something common in well, mostly adults, but I, I'm beginning to think that, that uh, you know, we see some kids who, for example, have inflammatory bowel disease, and <laughs> then they're on some medications that affect their immune system, and those patients tend to have some unusual cancers, most of the time lymphomas, but sometimes other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right, it is mostly in adults, but I think it's also a, a common relationship in, in kids. And to clarify, um, in those cases that you're describing in kids, and we certainly uh, have concern about inflammatory states promoting tumors, uh, certainly in, in, uh, um, in other solid tumors, um, but what you're describing are uh, more auto-inflammatory, autoimmune processes mm-hmm. in kids, that's correct, as opposed mm-hmm. to something that's exogenous that's mm-hmm. stimulating these tumors de novo in kids? So I think it can be both. I mean, I think one another example could be the hepatitis uh, viruses, sure. and yeah. then those cause a inflammatory liver disease, and then a certain percentage of those patients will have hepatocellular carcinoma. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, certainly in adult, um, but, I, but specifically mm-hmm. in, the, in the pediatric mm-hmm. population, it looks like it's mm-hmm. more... Uh, an automatic inflammatory, or are there defined cases of, of exogenous inflammatory causes in, in pediatric? Well, problems? so, you know, neonates mm-hmm. can have inflammatory lung disease as a result of being on uh, ventilators and being sure. premature, and then there's an entity called BALT, which is actually the same acronym as MALT. Yeah. Instead of MALT lymphoma, it's BALT, and it's okay. bronchial-associated lymphoid tissue, and it can be, oh. it can present kind of like MALT lymphoma. I've only seen a couple cases of it. It's not very common, but it does happen. So I think I think there's both. I think okay. patients who have autoimmune diseases like rheumatologic diseases and inflammatory bowel diseases, um, but also patients who have unusual causes of inflammation from exogenous causes. Okay. And along those lines, we mm-hmm. talked a little bit about kind of how the discovery of malt may work and may play a role in sort of how we treat patients in the future with different... Um, either immune problems or lymphomas. One of the things that struck me is you mentioned that sort of there's this balance between like 
too little of malt, could be like immune deficiency and too much of it gets lymphoma. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that balance and have you found like, is there a certain threshold by which if you have this amount of it mm-hmm. active versus, you know, what actually then kind of tips over the edge and makes it become a lymphoma? Mm-hmm. So uh, I think much of that balance depends on genetics. And so in patients, uh, some patients can have genetic mutations in their tumors that cause too much activity of this protein called MALT1 that's part of a big protein signaling complex. And those mutations can cause lymphoma. Now, could it be that there are people with those mutations who don't develop lymphoma? Probably, but we never have studied that, so we don't know. And then on the other side, there are a small number of cases now reported where patients have mutations in one of these three genes that we study, CARMA, BCL10, or MALT1, where they completely lose the function of the proteins encoded by those genes. And when that happens, they don't have functional T cells and they don't have functional B cells, and they basically then fulfill the diagnosis of something called severe combined immunodeficiency and so if you, if you happen to have a mutation that leads to no activity in those proteins, you will have immunodeficiency. So far, there haven't been any cases of mutations that, that cause like a partial loss of activity or a partial, you know, there haven't been anything, there haven't been any cases of a gain of function mutation. You know, I take that back. There's a family, a couple of families with something, I think it's called congenital B-cell lymphocytosis. It's actually studied at the NCI. And these patients have large spleens, they have enlarged germinal centers in their lymph nodes, and they carry a germline mutation in CARMA1. And they're predisposed to B-cell leukemia lymphomas, but they don't all have them, is my understanding. I've never actually seen one of these patients. But but they have, it results in a hyper-proliferative uh, state of their, of their lymphocytes. Is that? Yeah, yeah that's very interesting. Well, you know, the lymphocytes are one of the cells in the body that have to be so highly regulated, they have to be proliferative to fight off infections and right. quiescent to not yeah. have autoimmunity. Yeah. And so as we encounter things in our environment, et cetera, they have to really be able to turn on a lot and then turn off a lot. So it's yeah. really... Not surprising. Actually, what's surprising is we don't all get lymphoma. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I have had an exact thought before. Like, I can't believe I haven't had lymphoma. Yeah. But the, the proteins that you guys have been, you, you and your husband both mm-hmm. working in the same lab, um, mm-hmm. uh, have been just uh, uncovering really is a, uh, a pathway that's involved in inflammation mm-hmm. and, and not just cancer, as you talked about, atherosclerosis and others. So in some of these patients that have these congenital mutations, do they have other findings than other organs? You know, this is a great question, and I don't know the answer because they really have only been reported through a small group at the NCI, and I've actually never met them. Um, it would be interesting. Now, these are patients who have mutations in karma one so karma 1 really is only expressed in hematopoietic cells, so you wouldn't expect them to have uh, any effects on, on other organ systems. But, you know, I don't know the details yeah. of, of how these patients do. I just know they're predisposed to leukemia lymphoma. So the, the pathway that you guys have been studying, karma mm-hmm. and then BCL-10 and uh, MALT, mm-hmm. uh, is, is obviously very important in, in certain 
uh, lymphomas. And it, they all had a common, final common pathway of this protease activity that won't be activated inappropriately. So you kind of mentioned that there's protease inhibitors that are being developed. Now, obviously, protease inhibitors have been very successful in other diseases like right. HIV. Right. So where, where do we stand with uh, the development of these kinds of drugs? Well, there's many uh, pharmaceutical companies working on this right now. Um, and so far, there have been two publications, to my knowledge, where there have been compound libraries screened to identify compounds. One uh, publication uh, identified a small molecule called MI2, and that is not an FDA-approved drug. It's a compound in a small molecule library. And then another publication um, done out of Dan Kratman's lab in Germany identified this group of phenothiazines, um, primarily mepazine and another drug, thiorizine, which could be repurposed in theory to black malt one, although I believe that you know people are going to try to further refine those structures and make them more specific and more potent, etc. But if this pathway is so important in inflammation and infection and right normal B cell proliferation, yeah. how is that going to be selective for tumors? Well, so this is a really, really great question. If we block malt one proteolytic activity, it's almost surely going to have deleterious effects on the immune system. And so the question will become, like a lot of chemotherapy drugs, does the benefit outweigh the risk? And would blocking malt one cause enough benefit in a certain scenario that you'd be willing to live with the risk of the certain immune deficiency that would come with it? The other thing that I didn't mention in my talk is that mice have now been generated mouse models in which the proteolytic activity of malt one has specifically been inhibited without knocking out the entire malt one protein. And that's more similar to what would happen if you gave a patient uh, an inhibitor. You wouldn't knock out the whole malt one protein, you would just inhibit the protease activity. Those mice had very um, surprising findings because they actually developed autoimmune disease. So there's there's some thought that malt one has more than one function, it has protease function, but it also can act as a scaffold, and that's important in the immune system. So you knock out one arm of malt one's function, but you leave the other one intact, and that throws off the balance of B and T cell function in such a way that you can develop autoimmunity. What that means in mouse to humans, I don't know. Right. Yeah. A lot of work yet to be done. Yeah, a lot. So um, along those lines, uh, you also mentioned in your talk that there were different upstream uh, receptor pathways mm -hmm. that can stimulate uh, malt one activity, mm -hmm. and some of those certainly have been implicated in uh, in other tumors. Particularly, um, you mentioned uh, CRXCR4 mm -hmm. uh, and SDF1. Mm -hmm. uh, have you looked at other tumors to see if there is any variation in stimulation of malt one, mm -hmm. and if that correlates with disease aggression, just mm -hmm. as far as denote uh, as uh, existing. Uh, either malt one expression or activation. Mm -hmm. So we are just starting to look at the degree of malt one protease activation in tumors other than lymphoma. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, there haven't been yet any publications on that. And so to answer your question, I think that's an unexplored territory. Um, and I'm pretty excited to start looking into it. No, absolutely, because potentially could mm -hmm. indicate more tumors for which these mm -hmm. drugs that are being developed right. can be used. So. Right. Well, that access to SDF1 and CXCR4 is very important for homing to the marrow. and uh, So there could be a, a, for metastases as well as normal 
hematopoiesis, so there could be a lot of different applications. Yep. Mm-hmm. And actually, along those lines, um, you know, you put up a really nice timeline of sort of how things evolved from mm-hmm. um, a while back until now. It's been kind of like a 16-year-old journey for you. Yeah. So I was just curious, any specific, you know, kind of challenges that you had to kind of work through getting getting to where you are now along that timeline and sort of where are you thinking about moving forward from here? Where would be your main goal now in this research for you? Well, I think there were a couple of points of challenge along the way. I think we started this work, um, my husband and I, when we were postdoctoral fellows um, working with Gabriel Nunez and trying to figure out the direction of our own independent lab and start up like our own operation. Um, that was a definitely a challenge. It's daunting to go from being in a smoothly operating operation that's run by someone else to now doing doing that on your own. Um, so we had to work to figure that out. Another challenge in this field is it's very crowded and competitive. Uh, once the CBM complex was discovered, which really was in 19, was in 2000, roughly 2001, it's incredible how many people started uh, working on it, and it it's hard to figure out how to balance doing what you want to do versus knowing that another group is already working on something and then working on something that's more complementary rather than directly competitive to what they do. And we're always thinking about that because we're always constantly amazed by how many labs just keep working on this. It gets bigger and bigger every day, this topic. And I think another problem, which is a good problem to have, is... is and I'm biased, but I think this this complex, this karma BCL10 malt one complex that was discovered by studying the disease of malt lymphoma has a lot of important roles in a lot of places and where to put your priorities and and where to study it and where to not study it is uh, is a hard thing because uh, that we have thousands of ideas, but we can't really do a thousand projects, so we have to pick and choose. So that's kind of hard. In terms of directions, you know, we're trying to continue to have a balance of continuing to refine our understanding of the role of these proteins in lymphoma, because we have a lot of traction and background in that area. And at the same time, we've been branching out to studying this pathway and particularly MALT1 protease in other systems outside of lymphoma, um, including solid tumors and inflammatory diseases. Balancing that is a little challenging because it means you have to kind of maintain expertise in a lot of areas, which is, is hard. Yeah, I was saying that when you're putting up all the different diseases. Mm-hmm. And stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you can't be an expert in everything. Pediatrics all the way until adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what kinds of things would you tell trainees then or medical students about a career as a physician scientist and should they do it or not? <laughs> oh, absolutely do it. It is so much fun. It is so interesting, and it's so important. When I think about that, just in our little field, tiny little field, really, the changes that I've seen in the short time that I've been involved in this field, so I started postdoctoral training in 1999, and now it's 2015. That's not a very long time. There have been a huge number of incredible discoveries that have changed the way we think about so many things just in that small subset of of science. And 
it's worth all of the effort and, I guess, pain. I mean, it's true, getting grants is very challenging, and, you know, in some periods it can be super challenging because of funding levels, etc. It's very competitive. Getting papers into journals can be super hard. Sometimes you do experiments and the results don't work, and you go for month and month and months, and you don't have any good results. And yet, when I look at when I look at it from the perspective of someone who's now been in a particular field for 16 years, I'm so glad I stuck with it and had the resilience to do it because it's so rewarding to watch it evolve over time. And I think I say absolutely do it to answer your question. It's so much fun. How important has the patient care aspect uh, been t- to your journey, and are you still able to connect with that in your new role? So I think the patient care journey, uh, or the patient care portion, has been extremely important. It has influenced my thinking and my decisions and which projects to pursue and which not. I think you know one example is as our field of malt lymphoma was evolving, I recognized that some of the clinical work was demonstrating that certain cases were more aggressive than others and I understood what that meant because I've actually taken care of patients and because I understood what that meant it made me see the value of trying to understand what makes certain tumors more aggressive than others and there have been so many times when when my scientific direction and thinking has been influenced by some experience I've had in taking care of a patient or hearing about a patient. Um, so I think it's been really, really important. Um, it's a challenge to balance patient care and running a research lab and trying to do administrative work. It's definitely a challenge, and I think one of the things like we all have to do is admit that you can't do everything every day and you can't be the expert in every single way and sometimes it's hard because we all kind of kind of people that want to do everything yep so so um uh, it seems like a theme of today is is balance and um well i'm going to continue that thing. Okay. you mentioned that your husband is mm-hmm. the copi of your lab mm-hmm. To kind of get to the broader question of mm-hmm. work-life balance mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, my wife is not scientific, mm-hmm. and so I do try to be conscious of that. When your work partner mm-hmm. is your life partner, mm-hmm. how do you shut that down at home and not drive your, your son at, uh, um, crazy? That is such a great question, <laughs> and the answer is we need to do a lot better at that. <laughs> There's many great advantages to working with my husband, and... I, I really don't think I would want to do the job I have without that. I mean, that's just the way I like doing it. The one disadvantage is we drive our son crazy. <laughs> and so he has a rule that we are not allowed to mention the word malt one. <laughs> and when we do... malt bald. And then when we do, he gets very mad. And he, he actually took biochemistry this year. He was a sophomore in high school. And he had... Uh, a class where he had to give definitions of different scientific words, and one of the one of the words was enzymes. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm quizzing him, and we come to the word enzyme, and I said, "Max, guess what is an enzyme?" He's like, "What do you mean?" I said, "Malt one." He's like, "I hate enzymes." <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, that's something that uh, we wow. we could work on. Okay. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah. Thank you, Neelay. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Linda, for being here. Thank you. That. We're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twipo Podcast. And uh, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating treatment options for children. The team includes Donald Lewinsky, our executive producer, and Scott Kennedy and John Hanna, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Also, thanks to Lisa Ferrer for being the sound engineer today. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to this week in Pediatric Oncology.